Thank you for watching this online message from Riverstone Church. We hope that this content encourages you and helps you further develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit riverstonechurch.net. There you can learn more about us, view additional messages, submit your prayer needs, and even give online. Thank you for watching, and may the Lord richly bless you. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, the Apostle Paul uh, says, For this reason uh, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the public reading of Scripture. And Lord, we pray uh, today that you would speak to us. You have uh, ordained uh, this activity of preaching to be a means through which uh, the gospel is transmitted and our hearts are built up in faith. And Lord, for this moment today, uh, you have chosen me as a vessel to deliver that. And Lord, uh, I take that responsibility seriously. And I ask you, Lord, because I will receive a harsher judgment, Lord, to help me not to do or say anything uh, that would take away from the words of Scripture or from the gospel or from your intended purpose uh, for us today. Break to us the bread of life, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when we started chapter three, you'll recall that we talked about uh, what it would, uh, what the Apostle Paul kind of had started in chapter three when he began uh, his that the, the first verse of chapter three. He says, "For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles." And right before, uh, right at chapter two. He actually kind of leaps from that initial thought in chapter 1, and he kind of digresses and uh, explains his apostleship and the glory of God uh, being shown by unity between Jews and Gentiles. And what he had intended to do in verse 1 was actually to launch out in uh, a prayer. And so uh, he sort of begins the prayer and then says, oh, I thought of this and I want to share this with you too. And he begins that, and so from verse 2 down through verse 13 is actually an insertion that he made in the midst of the prayer. And so in verse 14, he comes back to the prayer, starting it out exactly as he did in verse 1, for this reason. And so he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And so he's uh, beginning to assume uh, the posture of prayer. And what we find in the first portion of chapter 3 is that Paul has been articulating this understanding of Jew and Gentile coming into one new man, that there's kind of just one unity. There's not two separate people. There is one unified 
people of God. And Paul had been uh, speaking to that type of unity. And in this prayer that we have in verses 14 uh, through 21 or so, he says what he's desiring here is that what he has just talked about in terms of our position, that we are one united body of Christ, that we would also come to experience this, that we would truly in our hearts know what it's like to be unified as one true body of Christ, that we wouldn't just realize that we're in the position of being unified in Christ, but that in our hearts we would experience the glory of what it means to be unified in Christ. So if we take the uh, the, the, the illustration of the day with regards to marriage, I can positionally, legally be a husband to my wife, but there is an experience that the two of us have to have together that truly creates that enrichment and love and intimacy that is necessary for a husband and wife to truly be one together. So there's the, the position of, of being one in Christ. But what Paul says is, I want you to experience what it means to be one in Christ. And that is what this prayer is about. And as we, as we look at this prayer, that's what I would like us to sort of focus on, just Paul's model prayer, both the content, but the idea of what is encapsulated, what he does when he prays. And I want to speak to you, and I feel like the Lord would have us uh, see today a few aspects of great prayers. There's many, many prayers throughout Scripture that we uh, could look at, but God, by His sovereignty, has brought us to this particular one today. And when I look at this prayer, one of the things that I believe the Spirit would have us to know and understand is that great prayers start with humility. Great prayers start with humility. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. I bow my knee because of God's great work in me and because of God's great work in his people. I humble myself because I know within myself I am unworthy for the grace that has been shown to me. I humble myself. Prayer by its very act is an act of humility. It's one of the reasons that we often find ourselves posturing in the kneeling position because we're saying there is something that God has or something that is about God or his character or his nature that causes me to put myself in a posture of lowliness before him. Now, I'm not saying you always have to bow your knee or you always have to get on your knee when you pray. Sometimes we pray and we need a prayer in the moment. We lift it up to the Lord. But the posture of our heart always ought to be a kneeling position. And it also brings us to the challenge of prayerlessness. One of the challenges of prayerlessness is that it ought to point us to pridefulness of the heart. Because what, in essence, you're saying in a prayerless existence is, I don't need God. I don't need God's presence. I don't need God's grace. I don't need God's wisdom. I don't need God's understanding. I don't need what God has for me. I don't have to ask God for anything. I don't even need to praise God as a prayer. I can just step back and I'm going to walk along my life as if God doesn't exist. And there's many who say, I am a Christian and live a life like that. 
Sunday becomes the only time we actually pray. And it's an act of pridefulness. When you open your eyes in the morning, train yourself that one of the first things you think about is not the phone, is not the news of the day, is not the email. One of the first things that you think about in the morning is God's grace to help you walk through the day. You or I do not know what we're going to encounter. We don't know what situations are going to come our way. We don't know what circumstances might befall us on a particular day. And we need God's grace at work in our life. And as we humble ourselves before him and of the heart assume the posture of prayer that he is God and he is the only one that sees ahead of me. He is the only one that knows what today is holding for me that I have to cry out to him to help me receive. Receive his grace day by day, moment by moment, as I humble myself before him. Train ourselves to begin our day in prayer. When you open your eyes, begin your day in prayer. In fact, all these phones that we have, they'll play any kind of music. Maybe set your alarm to praise music. So it sets your heart in the morning to seeking after God. Paul says, I bow my knee, the apostle, the great apostle himself, the one who understands scripture, the one who has written to us a large portion of the New Testament who's articulated the doctrines of the faith, the one who comes to us who's the Pharisee of Pharisees, who had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, who saw him, who Jesus spoke to. The apostle Paul says, I bow my knee before the Father. I humble myself before God, and I pray for you in a spirit and a posture of humility. How much more if that great apostle would do that? We too must humble ourselves before the Lord. Great prayers start with humility. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. That he would grant you. Great prayers, think of others. Oftentimes our prayers are about ourselves, aren't they? I'm speaking of myself. I'm not pointing the finger. I pray a lot about myself and my circumstances and my situation. But as I thought about this and I began seeing how the Apostle Paul, right in the beginning of his prayer, he's praying for others. He's praying for the Jews and Gentiles to be united. And in essence, he's praying for us in this particular prayer. He's praying. He begins right out, starting with someone else. My prayers often begin, oh God, help me. Oh God, get me through. God, provide for what I need. Paul says, I'm praying that he would grant you. We're going to talk about what he's praying for in just a few moments. But the grace that Paul has experienced in his life, he wants for the Ephesian brethren. As he has humbled himself before God, his first thought is towards other people. And what I've found in my life is that sometimes when I humble myself and I begin to think about other people, God naturally begins to meet the needs in my life that I don't even have to lift up to him. He naturally begins to minister to me. It's not that I don't ultimately pray for those things, but by my prayer for others, I get encouraged in the faith. Great prayers think of others. 
in John 17, the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays. Jesus prays the majority of his prayer for others. He does pray a portion of that for himself, but even as he prays for himself, he's praying for others in a very beautiful way. You read through that prayer, and he prays that we are one. He prays for our growth in Christ. He prays for our understanding. He prays for our perseverance. Jesus prays for us, and we ought to also pray for one another. This is why it's important for us to get to know one another. It's important for us to have face time with one another so that we are able to know the needs that one another has. We're able to understand one another, where one another is. And this is a twofold challenge because sometimes we just want to be by ourselves. We don't really want to interact. Maybe it's even in our personality to be a little more shy and we don't really want to interact with other people. But we have to step out of that in the body of Christ for the purpose of unity and oneness. Then there's also the challenge of not just kind of being a bit shy and holding back, but it's also the challenge of being so busy that you have no time for anyone else. You have no time to open your home to anyone else. You have no time to meet someone coffee to encourage them in the Lord. You have no time to do other things because it's so busy, 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 busy. We have to take time for one another. And while our families are important, the people in this room are most important. I believe that. I believe that it's important for us to have face time with one another so that we understand one another's needs and then we can pray for one another. You see, if I don't really know you, I haven't really talked to you, I don't really have an understanding of who you are and your background and where you're going, it's hard for me to pray for you other than just God bless brother so-and-so. God bless sister so-and-so. And and that just covers it all, Lord Jesus. I don't think that's what Jesus wants. I don't think that's the intention of Jesus. The Lord's plan as we come into unity with one another. I think the intention of the Lord's plan is for us to stand and intercede, to stand in the gap for a brother or a sister who's walking through a trial and our heart is touched because we know that person. We know their relationship with Jesus. We know their heart for the gospel and they're going through a difficult season and our heart gets torn. And out of our heart, we pray for them. God, help my brother. God, help my sister. Our heart wants to see God move. Great prayers think of others. They're prayed with an awareness of the needs of others, where others are, what's going on in their life, what's going on in their family, what's going on in their spiritual walk, in their situation. I see, oh Lord Jesus, brother so-and-so, he doesn't come to church regularly anymore. He's not part of Bible study. What's happening, Lord? I just see him come and go. God touch his heart. Great prayers are aware of the needs of others. Early great prayer. This is not a three-point sermon, by the way, so we're not on the last point. Great prayers have faith in the power of God. Verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit 
in the inner man. Paul is praying for you to be encouraged and strengthened with the power of God. Paul understands that the gospel is not powerless. The gospel is not powerless. The gospel is not powerless. What are you walking through this morning? What are the challenges in your family? What are the difficulties in the place where you find yourself today? What are the thoughts in your mind of things that you're seeking to overcome? The gospel is not powerless. Paul has an understanding that the gospel is not powerless. And he wants the Ephesians to be strengthened. He wants them to be strengthened with the power that he knows is available to those that believe. You see, the gospel is about power. Power to rescue the vilest sinner. Power to forgive the vilest sin. Power to deliver from bondage. Power to transform, transform lives and circumstances. Power to call the weak and to help them be strong. You see, the gospel is about transformation. The gospel is about power. But often we've come to a place in life where we think if I read the Bible and I just kind of live that life of just reading the Bible, but I don't have to worry about all of the stuff that I might think of that might be a little odd, might put me in an awkward situation. I can simply sit off to the side and God can do a work somewhere else, but I never see it in my life. I never see the change. I never see the transformation. I never see the joy that comes. How many people are without joy today? It's just a matter of me making a mental ascent to Jesus. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe he died on the cross. He was a real person. I believe all that. Yes, I believe all that. But do you believe that there is power to take someone who is wrapped up in the vilest of sin and to transform that person into a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ who is clean and holy and pure? There are times when we have to, church, walk by faith and not by signs. This is why we're encouraging us to be a people of prayer. This is part of who we are as a congregation. Uh, you'll remember in the book of Daniel that Daniel began a prayer. And somehow, and I don't fully comprehend or understand all that was going on in the spirit realm during that time, but Daniel began praying and at the moment of his prayer, we come to find out that there was actually an angel of the Lord who had been dispatched to answer and to respond to his prayer. But it was a period of 21 days before that angel actually was able to get to Daniel. And again, a full understanding of what was going on in the spirit realm there, I do not have. But what I do know is that sometimes when we begin praying, there's a necessity to labor in those prayers for a season before God. It's not that God is not going to answer. It's not that God is saying no. It's not even that God is saying wait. But God is saying in some way for us to continue to pray and to seek him. And what happens again when we pray is it does what the scripture do tells us of what we've already talked about. It humbles ourselves before the Lord. If you 
you spend much time in prayer, you will humble yourself before the Lord. You're going to think about the needs of others. Get your mind off yourself and begin thinking about the needs of others. And as I'm thinking about the needs of others and you're thinking about my needs, God begins to transform things in my life that he's revealing to you that maybe I don't even know need to be transformed. Sometimes we're so myopic, we just see the speck right in front of us, but someone else who is around us is able to see past that and say, you may be praying for that little speck, but I'm praying for something bigger for you. I'm praying that God will do something greater for you than that little piece that you're praying for. You see, prayers... Great prayers have faith in the power of God. We believe that God will move. We believe that God will transform. We believe that God will rescue sinners. We believe that God will transform lives. We believe, Mark Miller, that God will heal marriages, that there will be people who are pulling apart today by the hands of the enemy that God will bring back together in a great way. Yes, amen. There is power in prayer. Be strengthened with power. Be strengthened with power, the scripture says, through his spirit in the inner man. This is the strength with which Paul is asking God to bless the Ephesian church. And you and me, that it is through God's spirit and it impacts the inner man. You see, the outer man is wasting away. 2 Corinthians 4 and 16. But the inner man can continue to grow even when our flesh is week. Now, I want you to put on your philosophy hat this morning, okay? Put on your philosophy hat this morning. I don't know the exact date when these things came into existence. Some of you might be smarter than me. The first one that I remember was my uncle who owned a furniture store, and we called it the clicker. And the clicker, uh, which uh, my family still calls it that today, the clicker, because it was two buttons. One button changed the channel, and one button changed the volume, and when you pressed it, it clicked. So it was called the clicker. And we thought my uncle was the richest man in the world because he had a clicker. (laughs) And think about what technology brings our way and how it transforms our perception of things. Go back 150 years to the 1800s. Grandpa has lived his life. Grandpa has built a house with his own two hands. He went in, cut the trees down, sawed the lumber, put them together. He's worked a farm his entire life. He's learned how to plant uh, according to God's grace of Uh, the moon and other things. My grandfather, I can remember him planting crops through the farmer's almanac according to the moon to reap a better harvest, not in some astrological way, but just as God has designed things to grow. He would take care of his family his entire life. There was no retirement at that point. So when you were 60, you worked. When you were 70, you worked. When you were 80, you continued to work just as hard as well as you could. And then fast forward to whenever the clickers start coming out, and particularly the ones that you had to program. And now Grandpa has a TV in his house. Grandpa, who we used to admire for all that he had done, we used to say Grandpa is one of the smartest men that I know. He built his house with his own two hands. 
He lived in a time period where he didn't have the technology and the abilities that we have. Grandpa is really smart. And then we get the remote, and Grandpa can't program the remote. Grandpa has a TV in his house, and he, I remember my grandmother getting frustrated with the remote. And then we would get frustrated. She's messed it up again. How does she mess it up every day? We've programmed it. How does she mess it up every day? Grandma doesn't know what she's doing. I begin to think less and less and less and less of the older generation. And the younger generation becomes wiser and wiser and wiser and wiser in their own eyes. Well, think about it. We just prayed for people in school. Get a group of 15 third graders together and get them talking to one another. And you put that group together and you got the teacher over here. Who's going to think they're the smartest people in the room? It's actually called pooled ignorance. Because you've got a group of people who saying, yeah, that's right, that's right, yep, 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 that's right, that's right, that's what happened, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> but you've got someone else who's wise and who understands, and those who are unwise think, I'm wise, I know more than they do. And all the friends said, yeah, you know more, yep, 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 you know more. We have to realize that the outer man is wasting away. But the inner man continues to grow. And what this means is that there are people who are aged in Christ in their 70s and 80s and 90s who have just as much hunger of God's move to those who are young, who have just as much as a desire to see God's presence and God's glory and God's grace. Though the outer body may look a little different than 20, 30, 50 years ago, the inner man is being filled up in Christ and saying, God, I want to be like an Anna. I want to be like a Simeon. I want to see your work in the world today. Let me not pass without seeing with my eyes what you're going to do in the world. There is a generation that knows what it means to pray, that knows what it means to see God move. Though the outer man may be wasting away, the inner man is continuing to grow. And we have to think about how we respect those who are more aged in the Lord. Think about the Apostle Paul when he was writing in 2 Timothy, knowing that his death was imminent, not just down there in the road somewhere, but like probably tomorrow. And 2 Timothy Chapter 1, second part of verse 10, he says, Our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know in whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. In other words, the apostle Paul says, I know that my death may happen to Tomorrow or the next day. It's not months away. It's days away. But I, what I want you to know, Timothy, what I want you to understand, Timothy, yes, I think that's an exclamation point right there. 
What I want you to understand, Timothy, what I want you to know, Timothy, what I want you to get in your mind is that I'm still about the gospel. I'm still about the fire of God. I'm still about the grace of God working. Even though this body may be beaten, this body may be bruised, this body may be wasting away, the inner man, Timothy, is still focusing on the cross and focusing on the glory of God. And I will not be ashamed. Great prayers have faith in the power of God. Great prayers have faith in the power of God. Maybe you're not comfortable doing this. And I apologize. I know some people get testy about their age. But if you're not testy about your age, if you're 55 or older, would you just stand? Amen. Keep st- remain standing for me. So I'm not too far behind. I'll be 46 in a few weeks. What I want you to know is that one of the things that I'm getting the most joy in in ministry in this season of my life is pushing other people ahead into the calling that God has for them, to seeking other people who need to be more out in the forefront fulfilling the call of God. And I think that's often what the second half of our lives ought to be. The second half of our lives, what God has given you is experience. What the people younger than you don't have is experience. What God has given you is experience. Some of you have walked through the valley of the shadow of death and yet you fear no evil. You've seen God work. You've seen God's grace at work. You've seen God's hand at work. God's brought you through situations. You have a testimony that some of the younger generation hasn't experienced. They'll experience a testimony, but then they're going to need someone who is a little farther along in the faith to say, God has brought me through. You know the power of God. And so you have an important part to play. I know we talk a lot here about the next generation because I believe we have to equip them and we have to push them forward into the gospel. That's one of the things that resonates in my mind so often day by day is who is the next person. I'm thinking, who's the next person that's going to lead this church? Who's the next person that's going to take Riverstone to where God has for it? Who is that person in this fellowship right now that God is taking and God is going to cause to lead this church to where it needs to go? As you who are older or 55, you're not older, you are more seasoned. Those of us, you who are more seasoned in the faith, who have had experiences in the faith, what I want you to know is that you have a responsibility. Your prayers still matter. They still have power. You're still an integral part. You still have a part to play. We need you to be part. We need you to speak into the next generation. We need you as part of this church. We need the fire of God to rest upon you. There is a plan for you. And God wants you to fulfill it. It's not to sit idly by and to let all the young people Move in the forefront. It's to say, I am going to be full of the power of God. And I'm going to pray just as fervently. Though the outer, though I get up. I just told Nicole as I was sitting over there. I said, my knee is hurting so bad. <laughs> I'm make it to the pulpit. <laughs> though we feel those aches and pains. <laughs> the outer man wasting away. You can be on your deathbed with praise to God. 
You can live your life where it's not a downhill, it's an uphill. It's not over the hill. You're still climbing the hill in Christ. The body may say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm on the other side. The spirit is saying, no, I'm still running. I'm still inclining. I'm still increasing. God, use me. Amen. Thank you so much. Praise the Lord. Sister Temple, I hope you got a list. <laughs> Amen. Great prayers have faith in the power of God. Faith in the power of God. Verse, first part of verse 17. He speaks. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Great prayers exalt Christ. As we pray, our prayers must be Christ-centered, must be focused on the glory and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great prayers have a recognition that power comes through Christ, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, for Christ to dwell in our hearts, it means that he lives or resides in us. Paul is praying that Christ would be the dominating factor in every area of your life. And the question must be, does Christ reside in your heart? Is Christ a dominating factor in every aspect of your life? This is something that happens by faith, the scriptures tell us. We must believe that Christ dwells in our heart. And if Christ dwells in our heart, we live distinctly different than if Christ does not dwell in our heart. There is a requirement that as we are in Christ, we act differently. I remember when I was a young boy, as I mentioned to you before, I grew up in an old country Methodist church with wooden floors. And I can remember it was just my brother and I, and sometimes we get fussing in the pew. My mother didn't like it, and she would grab our arm. And this might be considered abuse these days, but she would leave fingerprint marks. <laughs> because there was an expectation that when you were in church, you acted differently. You weren't crazy. You weren't running around. You weren't fighting. You weren't doing other things. Boys! That you were acting with some sense. And when we didn't act with sense... My mother would grab my arm and she kept, she didn't cut her fingernails short. So they made an imprint to remind me that I was supposed to be different. And it's not just that you and I are to be different in church. We're to be different everywhere we go. There's a responsibility that when we're in Christ, we act differently because we have encountered Christ and Christ dwells within us. Do we act like Christ at work? Do we act like Christ on the phone? Do we act like Christ when we get poor customer service, when someone doesn't serve us just well in the restaurant? If you're a believer, has Christ made his dwelling place with you? Christ dwells in your hearts and your thoughts are toward him and your prayers exalt him. Just as the apostle Paul throughout Ephesians cannot stop talking about Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus, so also we must exist as believers through an overflow of the heart. Great prayers exalt Christ. Great prayers increase our faith that you 
so that Christ may dwell in you through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I am praying for you that as Christ dwells in you, that your faith would increase, your faith would be strengthened, and great prayers increase our faith. He's praying that our faith would be sustainable and that it would keep on yielding a crop of righteousness for God's glory. The thing that you are rooted in is the thing that feeds you. What you are rooted in is what feeds you. Why does a farmer take so much time preparing the soil, making sure it has the proper amount of minerals and nutrients and other things upon the soil in order to produce a good crop? They want roots to grow deep so that the crop grows strong. So they take time with the soil in order to till it, in order to sometimes let it lay fallow at times because the soil is so important. And that principle applies to the spirit realm as well. What we are rooted in is what feeds us. Now, I think sometimes people are rooted in this. You're rooted in Roundup. You're an activist. I know this is Monsanto and all that stuff, so sorry, bring it in church. (laughs) You have to be rooted in something that's going to cause your roots to grow deep and not kill you. And sometimes you plant yourself in things that are going to kill you. You plant yourselves in relationships that are going to kill your spiritual life. You plant yourself in circumstances that are going to kill your spiritual life. You, you get things in your home. You, you bring them right in your home, and it's going to kill your spiritual life. There, there, there are some people at these boxes. I'm glad we don't get signals in here that I know of on these machines because I don't, we don't need these things, with, as I've said before, with Hollywood telling us how to live. We don't need things in our house that teach our children what it means to be in a relationship. We need the scriptures teaching us what it means to be in a relationship. But when you invite something in your home and you watch things in your home where people are with this one and then with that one and they're doing this and they're doing that, you're rooting yourself in Roundup. You're rooting yourself in death. That's what you're doing. You're rooting yourself in death. And you may say, Brother Robert, that has been me. I've been looking at things. I've been doing things. I've been acting in ways. But I feel like my life has been rooted in Roundup because I look around me and all I see is death. I see death in my life. I'm facing every single challenge. I don't know which way is up. I feel at the bottom of the barrel. I know the things I'm doing are wrong. I know the things I've looked at are wrong. I know the relationships I'm in are wrong. And what you're saying about being rooted in Roundup, I feel like I'm rooted in Roundup. I feel like everything is death, and the 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 beauty of 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 this uh, roundup is its visible results in three hours. When you're rooted in roundup, it don't take long to see the effects. You may think what you're doing is in secret, but it's not. The beauty is, I read these instructions. And it says, 
follow the instructions, follow the, follow the illustrations and or instructions of how to assemble it. Spray the weeds you want to kill until thoroughly wet. If desirable plants are accidentally sprayed, rinse off immediately with water. Can I tell you that if you're in that situation today, there is a fresh water of God's Spirit that is available for you. There is a fresh water of God's Spirit that He wants to wash you and He wants to cleanse you. He wants to move in your life in such a way that the toxicity, that's what this does. This is toxicity. I've told you I grew up on a farm. I've seen, I've seen my cousins who were farmers before all this stuff was tested have chemicals in the back of tractors and stick their hand in and swish it around to mix it up. I've seen a cousin who was as strong as an ox that today is laid out in a bed because he has Lou Gehrig's disease that they think is because of toxicity. who loves the Lord and even sitting in a chair where it's hard for him to breathe talks about the praises of the Lord because of before a time where we have more understanding of these kind of things. But what I want you to understand this morning is that there is toxicity in this world that will quickly destroy you in less than three hours. It will quickly show up in your life. You think you're hiding it. You think it's hidden. You think nobody knows, but it's going to be found out. And it's not just going to be found out to shame you. It's going to be found out because the enemy wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy you. But there is a place that you can get underneath the reign of God's spirit. And he will flood you and overflow upon you and transform you. That what the enemy has brought, the toxicity in your life, God can transform you by his grace. God is able to increase your faith that what you are rooted in will feed you by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will be rooted in love. And when you're rooted in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll see his power at work in you to deliver you and to strengthen you, to move upon your life, to transform you, to see your situation change and your perception of your situation change. Great prayers increase our faith and make our roots grow deep in Christ. And finally, in verse 19, the prayer is to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that Christ, that, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God and to him is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. What Paul is praying and what great prayers yield is abundance. When we pray and we believe God and we understand his word and his work in us, great prayers yield abundance. The apostle Paul prays that the Ephesian church would know the love of Christ, that there would be an abundance within them, not just a filling up, but that a surpassing and abundance that would come upon them. And the love of Christ, it surpasses all knowledge. You cannot fully understand the love of Christ. You cannot fully know and comprehend with your human mind the love of Christ. But when you encounter it, your spirit is changed. He prays that you may be filled up 
to the fullness of God. And that fullness is only available as we are in Christ. And that's our prayer for this church and the people of this church is that as you walk in the door, you would feel the gauge rising in your life from empty to full. As you walk into God's presence and into the presence of his people, you would find that the gauge is rising when you think about coming to church and you think about being around people who love God and you think about being in fellowship in your home with other people. The gauge will rise and you will be filled up to the abundance of Christ. And I want to tell you this morning that if you're here in this world and you don't feel the abundance of the Lord Jesus Christ, press into him today. Press into him today. There is no more miserable place to be than a defeated Christian. It's miserable. Who wants to think that there is no transformation? Yes, I serve a great big God up in heaven who's doing big things up in heaven that I'll see some other day, but not today. Not right now. Not in this moment. Sometimes that's how our prayers are focused. I believe in big God up there, but I don't believe in God transforming right here. And as we grasp that, as we grasp that God doesn't just want us to believe in the glory that is to come, God wants us to know and understand the transformation that happens right here by the blessed power of God that pulls people out of sin and iniquity, cleans them up and sets them out in his kingdom to do a work for his glory that yields abundance. 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 That's what I pray for you and for me today. As I mentioned earlier, some of you feel like you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death. You feel like you've been going through it. And you wonder, God, where are you? God, I'm crying out. I'm praying. I'm seeking you, Lord. I don't fully understand, God, but I'm asking you to change. I'm asking you to transform a situation. God, I know you're working up there, but God, I need you to work down here. And God, not just for me, I want to be in the midst of a people who are on fire, who are hungry, who are moving, who are seeing things change, that the earth is shaking because that's what your word says, Lord Jesus. Your word says That when there's a few people who grasp a hold of the gospel precepts, that things begin to change and transform. That the world begins to change. People begin to act different. Lives come into Christ and people are transformed. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to pray into that this morning. As we worship, as we seek to exalt the Lord We always want to give an opportunity that if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, meaning you know about Jesus. When we talk about abundance, we talk about fullness. You don't don't know about that. You've never experienced what it means to really feel cleansed. 
that the guilt is gone. You don't understand, you haven't had that experience yet, that the guilt of past sin is gone. You still think God is against you, God is coming after you. You've not had that relationship, transforming relationship with Jesus. I want to pray with you, if that's you this morning. If you're here this morning and you say, this is me. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm trying. I'm trying. But if I'm honest with myself, I know where I'm rooted. I feel like I'm drying up. I feel like things are happening quicker than what I want to see. I'm not, I'm not rooted where I need to be rooted. I want to be rooted in abundance. I want to be rooted in the love of Christ. I want to be rooted in unity with his church. There's no shame in that. In fact, what I would say is if you're feeling the conviction, if you know that's you, that's God's grace right there for you. God's saying, hey, I love you. I love you. I want you to come and be transformed. I want you to be rooted in love. I want you to be rooted in good soil. So Lord Jesus, this morning I pray that you would move by your spirit. Lord, we ask you with liberty to move among your people. 